says the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and men a man of God came to Eli and said to him this is what the Lord says didn't I reveal myself to your ancestral house when it was in Egypt and belonged to Pharaoh's palace out of all the tribes of Israel I selected your house to be priests to offer sacrifices on my altar to burn incense to wear an ephod in my presence I also gave your house all the Israelite fire offerings why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship you have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel therefore this is the declaration of the Lord the God of Israel although I said your family and your ancestral house would walk before me forever the Lord now says no longer I will honor those who honor Honor me, but those who despise me will be disgraced. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your ancestral family, so that none in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship, in spite of all that is good in Israel, and no one in your family will ever again reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phineas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will rise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. Amen. Uh, the sermon this morning is a little lengthy. Uh, we're covering ten verses, which is more than usual, but we'll have to consider it all at once. I had a cool story that serves as a good illustration to start out, but I'm going to skip it, and we'll just jump right into the text. Last week, we, we were looking at the story of Hophni and Phinehas, and over the previous two weeks, we've, we've seen that uh, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, the scripture refers to them as sons of Belial, or sons of the devil, sons of wickedness. Uh, scripture also says that, that God desired to put them to death, and that's why they did not listen to the warning of their father, Eli. As we dive into the text today, we're going to look at it in three parts. First, we'll look at verse uh, 26 and we'll see what it's like to grow in righteousness. And we'll look at what's happening with Samuel there. And then we will look at verses 27 through 34. And, uh, and we'll see the consequences of unrighteousness, the very real consequences that are described in the text of Scripture. And then we'll look at verses 35 and 36. And, and we will see the result of righteousness. Uh, of course, as we have been walking through First Samuel... Uh, we have seen that everything is by God's providence alone. God, in His sovereignty, because He owns everything, provides everything that we have. God provides for salvation. He is the one who brings down to Sheol. He is the one who raises up. We read those words explicitly at the beginning of, of chapter 2 here. Uh, it, was, it was by the Lord's hand, because of God and His direct action in Hannah's life, that her womb was closed. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 5. It is only after God opened her womb that she conceived and bore a son. God is the one who provides all things. 
And the text has made that very, very clear for us. So before we jump into this text and begin talking about human responsibility or human accountability, we have to come to this understanding first because the text started here, right? And we don't look at the text out of context. We, we look at the text where it is in the story, and this comes after describing God's explicit providence in all things and through all things and to all things and with all things. God is the providential one. Let's look at verse 26 here together. Growing in righteousness. Now, now the boy Samuel, he was growing in stature and favor, both with the Lord and with men. Now, as we've already reminded ourselves, the entire reason Samuel is here serving the Lord before the priest Eli, serving in this, this tabernacle, is just because God provided that everything would work out so that Samuel would be here. God was bringing Samuel here. God was raising Samuel up. We know that. But then we read in this text, now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and favor with both God and men, or with both the Lord and men. I, I wonder what it is like that people actually grow in stature with both God and men. There are a couple of things we can notice here that are, are growing in stature and favor, or Samuel's growing in stature and favor. Uh, it meant the same thing regarding his growing in stature and favor with men as it meant uh, his growing in stature and favor with God. That meant the same thing. We can't look at this text, rightly exegete it, rightly expose it, exposit it, rightly interpret it, and say that this means two different things. This means the same thing. It's described as the same stature, the same favor that he He's growing in with God and with people. So we can't separate those, those two things. It means the same thing. Uh, I want to do a quick word study here through this sentence so we know exactly what it means when the Scripture says Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. First of all, we see the word growing there. We see that Samuel was growing. The word there in the Hebrew is Halek, and it, it, it means something to the effect of walking, going, traveling. And so it also cannot be said that this is just some passive thing that is happening with Samuel. Uh, in this text, this word growing, walking, this word wouldn't be included if it was just Samuel was, was growing up. Samuel was getting older. That's not what the text means. Otherwise, it wouldn't include this word growing in the Hebrew, which, which means walking or traveling or going or, or advancing intentionally working. That's what this word Means and so there's there's something about Samuel's growing in stature and in and in favor that is active on Samuel's part, something that he is actually working towards, something uh, that he is walking to accomplish, and that's what that that word there in the Hebrew gets at. Secondly, we'll consider the word the word stature, which is which is a word that means advancing in status, becoming more important or wealthy. It is a word that is pronounced gadol, if you care about that. And so Samuel is, is walking, he's advancing intentionally, actively in his, in his worthiness, in his importance, or in his morality. That's what this seems to connotate. And then, and then the word Favor here. Tov. 
And this word uh, means to grow in favor, means to grow in the delight of the person we're referring to. Grow according to this person's uh, pleasure. Uh, Grow in um, usability, become useful to someone. And so, so Samuel is growing, he's walking, advancing. By his effort, according to the way this sentence is laid out, by his working toward this goal, his actively participating... Now you see why it's important that we remind ourselves of God's providence, right? Out of context, we could take this to to mean some sort of works-based righteousness, but within context, God has already provided salvation, God has already provided the call, God has already brought Samuel to where Samuel is, and then Samuel is here now walking now working, now advancing, actively participating in God's providential plan, coming to some sort of worthiness before God, growing in His morality, growing in His usefulness, growing in His worthiness, growing in His status. This is what is happening here with Samuel in verse 26. Now, I want to ask a question this morning, and you don't have to participate if you don't want to, but feel free to if you like. How many of us have ever heard it either proclaimed from any, any pulpit, taught in any Sunday school class, or in, or in some Bible study that, that God, God takes the first step, God makes this invitation that is available to all people, but he leaves it up to us to respond. How many of us have heard something to that effect? God throws the invitation out. He makes himself available. But you must, but you must respond. But you must respond. Uh, we hear something to this effect all the time. All the time. And it's one of the questions that I want us to be thinking about as we move through this sermon. And we'll we'll answer what Scripture has to say uh, about that in the the next section. Well, what we see in in this section here in verse 26 is is this, that, that there is some sort of active role we play. And we want to get at exactly what this active role is that we play. It's not just this passive, okay, God saves us. God sanctifies us. God brings us to Himself. And it's, it's, it's not this weird sort of, sort of theology where God saves us. This would be defined as free, free grace, is what this would be defined as. Where God saves us, relax, you don't have, there's nothing else. Uh, you, can, you can do whatever you want, live life any way you want. You walked an aisle, you prayed, you got baptized, whatever it is. You are, you are, you're, you're good. You don't have to worry about anything else. That's not the sort of theology we see here. Instead, Samuel is, is walking, actively growing, pursuing the God through his service to God. And the New Testament confirms this. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And then we'll also look at Philippians together. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through, through 10 says this, For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. So this confirms the first part, right? That not of yourselves, it is a gift from God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. There's no way that we can boast. God is the one who saves. God is the one who has all providence. This is what we've seen in the first part of the first book of Samuel. And then verse 10, for or because we are His workmanship. He is the one working in us and through us. He is the one providing all things. For we are His workmanship. We are the ones who are created in Christ Jesus. And we are actually created for good works. Created for good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is the language of Ephesians. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And we add the modifier alone because we can't add works to it, right? That's why we say by grace alone, through faith alone. We can't add our works. We can't do anything to merit salvation so that we can't boast. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians. But then we see that we're saved for the purpose of doing good works in Christ Jesus. We're not just saved to, okay, you're good. We're not saved so that so that we aren't going to a place called hell or so that we can make it into heaven. That seems to be a kind of an adjustment of the gospel and we don't really receive that in the text of Scripture. It is true that we get to be with Christ forever. It is true that we escape hell, but that's not the focal point of the gospel, right? The focal point of the gospel is this. Christ selects a people for Himself, saves a people for Himself, saves that people for good works in Him that He might receive glory, that He is glorified. And here in Ephesians, we even see, chapter 2, verse 10, that God has prepared these good works beforehand so that we, people in Christ, would walk in them. If anyone in here questions whether or not you know Jesus, are you walking in those good works? Scripture says that we will if Christ has saved us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 13. And this scripture reflects even more closely what we read in 1 Samuel. This is also from the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... We see where the focal point is, right? Jesus. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12, listen. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go to church to be entertained? No. Go to church to hide away? No. Live life like everything's all good and you don't have to worry about it? No. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. God is still the one providing all of this. And we, we get this amazing active role. We're not just passive recipients of all of... We, don't, we know we're not zombies. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you 
both to will and to work for His good pleasure. His good pleasure. This is, this is an amazing truth. And sometimes we get so you know, caught up on the doctrines of a, a grace, election, predestination, and reprobation. We've been there the last couple of weeks, right? We don't think about what comes next. And what comes next is, like with Samuel, we actually get to work at our salvation. So the, the proper Christian message... The proper message of message, the proper message of the Bible is not you must do good works in order to find favor with God. That's the opposite of what the Bible's message is, right? No, no, the message is is this when God saves, when Christ saves us to himself shares His grace with us, we actually get to participate in an, in an active way in the kingdom of God. And we actually get the opportunity to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. And we feel like sanctification is a lot of work on our part. I have to grow and I, and I, and I, and I learn and, and I, I learn to get over my sins and I learn to come out of my unrighteousness and I'm clothed more in the righteousness of God. That's because Scripture really does describe this as work, an active walking on our part. The boy Samuel was growing in stature and favor with both the Lord and with men. And this is, is exactly what the Scriptures are getting at. And the New Testament affirms that as the Apostle Paul, who probably was the greatest expert of the law and of the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? The Apostle Paul says, yeah, work out your salvation with fear and trembling after saying it's by grace alone, through faith alone. And so we see this order presented to us again, right? There's regeneration in Christ. Regeneration brings faith. Works come after faith. So we see regeneration precedes faith, precedes work, and those who come into Christ will work out their salvation. This is the order of things. This is, this is the way it is, it is stated through all of Scripture in both the Old Testament and in the New and in the new. What amazes me most about verse 26 here is it says the boy Samuel was growing in stature and favor with both the Lord and, and with men. This same language, the same language almost exactly except we transfer from Hebrew to Greek is used to describe Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2 verse 52 where the scriptures actually say Jesus is the one advancing in stature and favor before both God and people. And it's amazing to draw this connection between Samuel, who would become prophet, and he would become priest, and he would serve as the king, and then Jesus in the New Testament, who is the eternal, everlasting prophet, priest, and king. Through the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see Samuel is actually a type of Christ, and Samuel's life is a testimony to who Jesus Christ would, would be in the New Testament. Samuel served as this living parable 
of Christ's life so that when Christ comes, people see Christ. And they look at Samuel. David would be another type of Christ. And we'll see that later in the books of, of Samuel. And people would see Jesus and go, this looks a little familiar. Let me go back and see the Scriptures. Oh, Samuel. And oh, David. And we see these parallels. And it's all meant to point to the fact that yes, Jesus is the Messiah. The difference between Jesus and, and the types of Jesus we see through the Old Testament is, is just that Jesus was without sin. The types of Christ, they, they sinned. They were fallible people. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus died for humanity, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect form of God, the perfect revelation of God. Move on to the next part here, verses 27 through 34, and we'll look at this in just a couple sections. And we're just going to see, this is brutal, so you'll just have to to bear with me. We'll see the consequence of unrighteousness. First, we read this in verses 27 through 29. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, the man of God there just means a prophet. A prophet came to Eli, said to him, somebody who spoke the word of the Lord. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel? to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me. And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why did you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? We see where the focal point is. It's on God. On my dwelling And why did you honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Now if you remember, if you remember last week, Eli actually comes to his sons and he asks his his sons why, why they were sinning. Notice that nowhere... In Eli's frame of mind, was he considering his own sin before God, even though he was participating with his sons and eating this meat that his sons embezzled from the people of Israel? In fact, the text almost seems as if they're they're gorging themselves. They're taking the, the choicest portions for themselves and eating these, even though these were to be sacrifices to God. And Eli is participating with his sons. And he was unable, absolutely unable, to recognize his own sin. And this is where we continue to think about this question, right? Does God just throw out an invitation and expect or hope that people will respond to this invitation. God God did everything for Eli and Eli's sons. They were part of a prominent family. They were sons of Levi, sons of Aaron, descendants of Aaron, the high priest. This this person, Aaron, was promised the priesthood. He and he and all the, the generations of his family to follow him were promised this priesthood. 
and Eli and, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were part of this, this great family, high status, part of this priesthood that God says He chose them for and He placed them in this high position. They had the family, they had the status, they had the position, they had authority. And apparently they had riches too, because we see that described in, in the text. And they had riches because they were embezzling, but if God provides all things, that means He's also, he's also provided those riches, right? Now God appealed to Eli over and over again. Eli appealed to his sons over and over again. God was not hidden from them. He was available. Yet Eli and his sons, his household, completely rejected God. In fact, Eli honored his sons more than he honored God. That's idolatry. That's the, that's the top sin, right, is idolatry. Do not have any other gods before me. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. That's what the Lord said when He gave the Ten Commandments through Moses, right? This, this just obliterates my heart, right? And I'm like, Eli, Hophni, Fini, God is there for you to see. And still you reject, and still you reject God? I mean, this would be like God opening up the skies and revealing Himself, right? And people still going, no thanks. We couldn't imagine that happening. Yet that is what we see happening here in the text. And the text seems to indicate that by our nature, even if we see God clearly, even if we see the open invitation, even if we know God is real, even if we, we believe that, that Christ died right and was raised from the dead, that because of our nature, it seems that we are just unable to respond to an open invitation as, as some people seem to describe this. Do you think we see this idea anywhere else in, in, the, in the Scriptures? Yes. Just turn with me to John chapter 6. And this is more unbearable than we see with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. We can't skip over this truth. This is pretty important for us to get. Jesus had been performing some miracles, had been doing, doing some work, doing some ministry, doing some good things. And this great crowd of people began to follow Jesus. And this crowd of people was following Jesus and following Jesus and following Jesus. And, and Jesus stopped to, to teach them. There's more to the story than this, but Jesus is, is teaching is teaching the people. He starts talking about this bread. People of Israel, he's talking to Jews, like your forefathers were fed in the wilderness with bread. Now God has some bread for you now that will provide eternal life, and you will, you will never go hungry again. Never go hungry again. The people start saying... Give us this bread. Give us this bread always, they said. They said, give us this bread always. And then Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse, verse 36. We'll start in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Look, they're face to face with Jesus 
the Messiah, the one with all this power, they have just seen Him perform miracle after miracle. He has the power. He has authority to forgive sins. He's already revealed this in John's Gospel. And then in verse 36, before, before the people even respond, Jesus says, But I said to you that you have seen me. You are face to face with me. And yet, you do not believe. <laughs> yet you do not believe. And then verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And then again in verse 39, Jesus repeats himself, This is the will of him who sent me, God, that all of those he has given me, I will lose nothing or not one, but I will raise it up on the last day. The Jews started grumbling. Who does this guy think he is? What is this guy starting to teach? Jesus has repeated this teaching now twice in this passage. And in verse 44, he, he repeats it again a third, a third time. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in verse 45, he, he quotes from the Old Testament so that he can confirm this truth with the, with the people. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and says, this is how you know what I'm saying is true. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 54, verses 13 and 14. And he says, it is written in the prophets... And they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And there in Isaiah chapter 54, just to provide some context here, Isaiah is is prophesying about this remnant of people, the redeemed of God, who will, the words of Isaiah, who will be established in the righteousness of God. It must be the case that they shall all be taught of God. And this is the truth that Jesus is, is teaching. The redeemed are redeemed because God chooses, God reveals, God draws. Not because God gives some open invitation and just hopes that people will respond to it. We keep going through, through the text. And Jesus continues to say, I am the bread of life. And the people continue to grumble. They're, they're complaining. This teaching is too difficult. And in verse 64, Jesus repeats himself again. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning those in the audience who, who didn't believe in him who weren't going to believe in Him. And He knew who it was that would betray Him. Of course, it's referring to Judas Iscariot. Then in verse 65, repeats Himself again. If Jesus is repeating Himself this many times in a single passage, this ought to be something very important for us to get, right? Verse 65, And Jesus was saying, For this reason I have said to you 
that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. In verse 66 there, you see, as a result of this, not only as a result of this teaching, but as a result of God's work of election, apparently in the context of of the text, right, we see many of those who were following Jesus, they withdrew, they followed Him no more. This teaching was too difficult. This is tough. And this is what's going on with Eli and with Hophni and with and with Phineas. Matthew chapter 22 verse 14 Jesus would say this, many are called and called in that context means invited. We do scatter the seeds everywhere. Everyone really is invited, right? Many are called, few are chosen. And that's the explicit teaching of Jesus. And you can't take that and twist it into anything else. That's, that's what it means. This is what Jesus taught in several places. As you read through the Gospels, we pay attention to that, right? We pay attention to everything. But now as you read through the Gospels, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how often Jesus actually taught this. It's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. So... No, it is not the case that God extends an open invitation and just hopes that people will respond. It is the case that God hands some over to their own unrighteousness and that despite our will, our desires, chooses some for himself and brings them under the control of his will that those he hasn't chosen is handing them over to their own desires it is not the case that God forces people to sin we can't extrude this to mean that right it's not the case that God forces people to sin God does not force people to sin we see in Romans chapter 1 this this monologue that Paul has with with the believers in Rome talking about sin and exchanging unnatural relations for natural relations. And and he makes this statement, God handed them over to their desires. What a deep theological truth. That it's just our nature to act in a way that is contrary to God. It's our nature to desire things that are contrary to God, that exalts self that's why we call it self-righteousness, right? Paul in the book of Romans just calls it unrighteousness. He, just, he skips saying self-righteousness is too soft. He goes straight for the throat. Unrighteousness. I told you I was feeling a little bit sarcastic this morning. Sorry. We see that God just... He doesn't force people to sin. He places the law. He hands people over to sin. He hands people over just to their desires and people choose what is natural to choose. Sin, what is contrary to God. They are condemned and self-condemning. And for the people God has chosen, He wins the victory. And so I find this truth again. I am responsible for all of my failures. 
God is responsible and receives glory for my victory over sin and over death and over my own unrighteousness as He brings me into His righteousness alone. We'll move on to the next section of the text here. Verse 30. After God is described as the one with all providence, the one who provides all things, after God is provided as sovereign, after God is described as the one who brings down to Sheol and raises up, after God is described uh, as the one who saves his people, as the one who, who provides all things, even a child to Hannah, and God is described as the one who is working out all things from before the foundation of the world, and he has placed Eli and Hophni and Phinehas in this position. Then we get to verse 30, and this verse just throws us for a loop, right? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But, and God seems to change his mind, change what his will is in this verse, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So God, it almost seems like we're moving here from the sovereignty of God to, to now, now God is, is responding to people. And this, this verse can really be troubling for someone who takes the Scriptures seriously. And there are several verses like this in in the Old Testament particularly, as God is dealing with Israel and through the prophets and dealing with kings, there, there are several verses that almost look like God changes His mind and that God changes His will. Because here, it was God's will. Eli and his household would serve before the Lord forever, is what the text says. Then all of a sudden, God's, God's will, His choice, His decision, He's doing something different. What is going on here? Would somebody else like to come up and answer this question, please? Let's look together at Exodus chapter 29, verse 9. I won't just leave you hanging here. We'll answer this. Exodus chapter 29, verse 9. We see this promise that God makes to the priest, Aaron. It's the first time we see this promise, and so we know that this promise began with Aaron. Exodus chapter 29, verse 9. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute ongoing, continuing, from generation to generation. They shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute, so you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. That's the promise that God made to Aaron. So we're going to establish this promise first. And Numbers, chapter 25, verses 11 through 13, we see one of Aaron's descendants. His name is Phinehas, and and Phinehas was faithful to God. And because of Phinehas' faithfulness, so the text says, because of Phinehas' faithfulness, God reestablishes this promise with Phinehas. We read it in Numbers chapter 25, verses 11 through 13. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, 
I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual, ongoing, from generation to generation, priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. So we see this promise made to Aaron, and if it's made with Aaron, God's already thinking about this when he'll make the promise again to Aaron's descendant. So he made this promise with Aaron, you will have an everlasting priesthood. He makes this promise with Phinehas, you will have an everlasting priesthood. And Eli is one of Phinehas's descendants. This is this lineage, this is this, this household continuing down. And then all of a sudden, God is saying, I've changed my mind. It's difficult to think about, isn't it? Let me let you dwell on this for just a little longer. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. We see that Zacharias, the high priest, had a wife whose name was Elizabeth. This is John the Baptist's mom. And then... Luke chapter 1, verse 36, we, we see that Mary was the cousin of Elizabeth. This is in Aaron's line, though it's not in Phineas's direct line. But it is in Aaron's line, in Aaron's household. Actually, this is in Phineas's line. But we see here that Jesus, coming from Mary, is actually a direct descendant of Phineas. Jesus... Jesus would have the holy priesthood forever, a perpetual priesthood. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus, not in Eli, not in Eli's sons. God keeps his word. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't changed his will. The promise is fulfilled in Jesus. God carries through with everything that he says. Now, we look at 1 Chronicles chapter 6 verses 16 through 30, and it is revealed to us that Samuel's dad, Elkanah, is actually a Levite. This is pretty cool stuff because Samuel then is a Levite. He's part of this priestly tribe and God is making Samuel priest. And so he's like holding this position with Samuel the person, the priest Samuel, who is a Levite, not straying one iota from his own word, from his own promise. This is cool stuff. God is a genius the way he works things out, okay? He doesn't stray from his word at a, at a single point. Samuel was a Levite. He's basically a bookmark for the promise. And then him being a type of Christ is pointing to the one who will fulfill the priesthood of God's promise, this perpetual priesthood, forever. We see a few other similarities between Samuel and Jesus. One is a miraculous birth, right? A miraculous birth. In the temple or tabernacle as a child serving the Lord. Jesus was dedicated and he, he astounded the people at the tabernacle with his questions. The rabbis there with his questions. So we see that similarity. We see that they were both descendants of Levi, part of the Levi tribe. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, it's also revealed that Samuel was an Ephraimite from the land of Ephraim. Guess who else is from the land of Ephraim? King David. And then Jesus after King David. This is cool stuff. Can you tell that I get really excited about this stuff? So Samuel was an Ephraimite Levite. Jesus, an Ephraimite Levite. This is just cool stuff. 
And God is working all of this together, and it's all pointing to Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. This is all foreshadowing Jesus. This all points to Jesus. And so the story really isn't about Eli and, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. The story is about the glory of God, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the Son, the Word of God, the Messiah. And we are here not to pursue our own glory or, or to think that God is interested in just throwing out an invitation and hoping that people will come to Him like He's somehow groveling at our feet. No, God is he's, he's King here. And He does not stray from His Word. Instead, what we see going on here is God is punishing, disciplining Eli and Hophni and Phinehas their household. And so as we read this part of the text, God says, I did indeed say, your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. It's a confirmation, right? He's not saying, but I'm going to go against that. Instead he says, but now I declare, the Lord declares, far be it from me with your particular household, Eli, I will still fulfill my word. I have still decided this from before the foundation of the world. Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So we see on the one hand with Samuel, right? We are saved, chosen by God. We work out the faith with fear and trembling. And then we see with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, they were not chosen by God, did not have regenerate hearts did not follow after God. They knew about God. But they did not honor the, the, the God. And so God says, those who honor me I will honor, like Samuel, who does this because of my provision, and who walks, who works out the faith. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. They will, they will not be honored. And so there's this there's a very real consequence for sin and for unrighteousness. And we are responsible for all of our sin and all of our transgressions. Thank the Lord for salvation by grace through faith that He provides because we just wouldn't be able to respond to just an open invitation. God loves, like a good father loves His children, that He adopts for Himself, loves us enough to come after us, to get us. To like the father in the parable of the, the prodigal's son, popularly known. Doesn't just wait for His son. He runs out to His... This is what God does. This, what kind of love is this? Not a love that we deserve. Verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength. God talking through the prophet to Eli. The days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And the old man will not be in your house forever. 
Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This is, this is harsh. This is like the consequence for unrighteousness, right? This will be a sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Maybe the worst fate of all is to see one's children perish. On the same day, both of them will die. On the same day, both of them will die. So God has handed them over to the desires of their hearts. Since we reference Romans chapter 1, we'll mention it again. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, tells us explicitly, God does not force you to sin. He hands you over to the desires that you naturally have. This is the theology of the Bible. And in Romans 1, 24, there the word for desire or lust is epithumai, which just means the natural desires you have. It's not, not some weird super lust that we might impose on the text. No, this is just the natural desire that people have, epithumai. We're slaves to our nature. We can point the finger at God all we want. The truth, the truth is we, we don't need help sinning. We just, we just do it. We see this evidence even in small children. I was reading um, R.C. Ryle, um, an Anglican in 1900s. And... Uh, and he said, children are... Children, that little child is not the angel that you presume him to be. No, that child is a little sinner. And he spells it out. And he, Look at how narcissistic this child is. It's acute narcissism, but it's narcissism, right? It's still selfishness. That's just the nature. We are born into this nature, and God... God hands us over to the desires of our hearts. And so we choose according to our own lusts, according to our own desires, and, and we earn the wage for doing these deeds in the flesh. As good as we might perceive these deeds to be, we earn the wage. And what does Scripture say? The wa- what are the wages? The wages of sin is death. But then the gift... Gift, gift, key word, gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So I am responsible for my sin. God is responsible for my victory. God is responsible for my victory. And He receives all of the glory. All of the glory. Read the last two verses here in this passage of Scripture, verses 35 and 36. Through the prophet, God speaking to Eli says, But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Who will raise up a faithful priest? God. So even though, and he's talking about Samuel, right? So even though Samuel is working out the faith, actively participating in God's providential work, still God is saying, but I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in whose heart? My heart, God's heart. And whose soul? God's. God's soul. And I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. He will walk before my anointed always. This language is similar to the language that Hannah uses at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, verse 10. 
that He will give strength, God will give strength to His King and will exalt the horn of His of his anointed, you see, uh, the Samuel will walk before my anointed always. We're pointing now to the future king. There's not a king yet, right? But we're pointing now to the future king. First it would be Saul, and then we would see Saul's unrighteousness, and then we would see David, a man after God's own heart, despite his sin. This is a gift, right? Despite his sin, a man after God's own heart assumed the throne. And Samuel is the one who's coronating both of these kings. And it is through these kings that the throne of Christ is being prepared within Christ's creation. This all points to Christ. And so Samuel would walk before the anointed. That will mean the king. And that will mean as a servant to Christ, the agent through whom the throne of Christ is prepared in Christ's creation, and Himself being a type of Christ. We see why this is important. Everything points to Christ and our need for Him. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He is the one who saves. Verse 36. Everyone, the prophet continues to speak to Eli, everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to Him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. And this reminds us of what's already been stated in the text in the second half of verse 30. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Brothers and sisters, let us... Let us not take lightly our unrighteousness. Let us live in in repentance before God. We see that Hophni and Phinehas and Eli too, they were corrupting the sacrifices of the people that were being brought. And they were embezzling this and, and using it to honor people. And Eli was using it to honor himself and his sons before he honored God. Our, our, our offering, our financial offering... Here, it's, it's like it parallels the sacrifices that were brought to the temple. We want to resource the church so that the church can sponsor the work of God everywhere we go, right? We can't we'll skip on our offerings, right? We want to practice faithfulness. And even though we don't take a formal offering here, we have this offering box in back. But the big point to be made here is this, that elders... Myself, fellow elders and administrative staff, we are responsible to God for the way the donations here are used. Let us not use the financial givings of the church members ever to honor ourselves or our family members above Christ. Every cent to honor Christ, to build Christ's kingdom not the kingdom of the church at Sunsites, not the kingdom of Andrew Cannon, every cent to further God's administration by faith. That would be the language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy. And the application we make to individuals, right, is we are just as responsible for what goes on with our personal pocketbooks. If we look at our bank statement, we record how our cash is spent. Is it being spent 
to honor God or is it being spent to honor self or to honor family members above God or to honor friends above God let our resources the things that God gives us let let us use those for Christ for Christ alone and that's it don't hear me saying that donate every cent to the church at sunsets that's not it's not what I'm getting at right I hope that we're generous and Katie and I try and be generous but man getting something at Walmart giving to other nonprofits, making sure people who are in need not only get what they need but also get the gospel we see here that just people they don't see it we're not able to see it if all we do is get blessings or status or all we are is provided for we need to hear the word the gospel must be proclaimed people we don't just get it because we're blinded by our nature right the gospel has to be explained it's the only way it happens it's the only way it works it's the only way the message goes forth and God takes the time to supernaturally share his message sure but his primary means is by the proclamation of the saints this being our year of evangelism we remember this let's go proclaim this the word of God scatter the seeds everywhere we can everyone is invited those who are chosen will come and that's our responsibility just scatter the seeds water the seeds God brings God brings the growth. Brothers and sisters, we dwell on these things. We dwell on all of these things. And we don't leave out any part of the text, skip it over, hide it. And we don't add to the text. 